When I was 13 or so, I had a great opportunity to be part of Australia's National Talent Identification Program for Cycling. I'd already been riding mountain bikes before I got picked up, but part of the deal was learning how to ride and race on the road. So every Wednesday morning, in the middle of winter, I might add, a bunch of straggly and mismatched kids got together to learn the finer points of our elegant yet dangerous sport. We started with learning how to ride in a bunch, and I distinctly remember this one time when we were learning how to roll turns on a quiet country road outside of town. We'd been doing fine on the straight dual carriageway before turning off onto this quiet road, but as soon as we turned onto the windy, uphill two-lane road, our pace line started to fall apart. Riders were getting dropped, others were gapping the rider behind them. It was a mess. And it was at this point when one of our more passionate, Reed, hot-headed coaches sprints up the wrong side of the road and starts yelling at everybody. Hold the wheel, ease up front, move over, come on, come through, and on and on and on until we slowly got it together. And while I have nostalgic memories of these times and often fall back on this advice, I've been doing some research into a better way of mastering certain cycling skills. And it still has to do with coaching cues but it has nothing to do with barking orders about where to put your bike or what to do with your body. From Semi-Pro Cycling, this is Ride Better Faster, a show about cycling training and racing. I'm Damien Roos. In this episode, attentional focus through external coaching cues. How this specific type of cue speeds up the learning process so you can reach a higher skill level faster. Plus, in the Science of Fast segment, we take a deep dive into cycling-specific isometric resistance training. A bit of a mouthful, but it could increase your peak power output and get you sprinting faster. It was also on these cold and dark mornings where we'd do hill reps and coaches would be on the hill with us, watching our form, riding behind us, telling us to get comfortable with the gear, scrape the mud off the bottom of our feet and stop moving our damn upper bodies. And for as long as I've been around cycling, I've always noticed the riders that didn't get this intensive and expert cycling guidance in cycling techniques and skills. And I've wanted to do something about it because it makes you a better rider in many different ways. The thing is, I get how lucky I was and how hard this type of instruction is to come by if you've come to the sport later in life. How do you get this instruction, especially for road riding? Some clubs hold workshops, or you can get a skills coach, like my buddy Dylan of Ride Technics, when no shit, he actually coaches professional road cyclists on their bike handling skills. But I've spent a lot of time thinking about this. How can skill learning and performance be facilitated and optimized? This is more than just watching pros on TV and copying them, or getting told what not to do by the local expert. The shapes we make on the bike may look right, but it's all about how it feels and how to get to the point where we know how a skill should feel. Because what it feels like is the gold standard. If it feels good, it probably is good. If it feels bad, it probably is bad. My research on ways to teach and learn new skills led me to something termed focus of attention. And over the past 15 years, research on focus of attention has consistently demonstrated that an external focus enhances motor performance and learning relative to an internal focus. 
the type of coaching cue, this is external, internal, or normal, which I'll define in a moment, a coach uses has a profound effect on your short and long-term performance, including your ability to retain the skill in order to perform it with the same quality at a later date. Since the publication of the first study on this in 1998, a lot of studies have shown external coaching cues to be more effective than both internal and normal cues for performance, skill development, and retention. And this is exciting. When I read about this, I was pumped because in the strength and conditioning world, coaches use this regularly, but it's rarely seen in the cycling world. And while I wasn't able to find any studies done with cyclists, there are a few key takeaways that we can glean from the research, specifically with something called movement efficiency measured by muscular activity. Sorry, I know I'm throwing a lot of these one-liners at you today. In other words, External coaching cues work when the skill involves maximum force production, speed, or endurance. Perfect for cycling because the type of cycling skills here might be sprinting, pedaling, climbing, standing, and sitting. I think there's a bunch of others that I can't think of right now. And who doesn't want to get better at these? So what exactly are coaching cues? Coaching cues are methods of verbal communication that can be used by coaches to focus an athlete's attention for enhanced sport performance. They're used to teach the athlete how to perform a task or a skill, and the aim of the cues is to move athletes through the four stages of competence faster. So the path to mastery model developed by management trainer Martin M. Broadwell in the 1960s helps us to work out where we are in our development for certain skills. So I'll run through the four stages and let's pick sprinting to try and work out what stage you're in. So the four stages here, number one, unconsciously unskilled, where you have no idea you are doing it wrong. Number two, consciously unskilled, where you know when you are doing it wrong. Number three, consciously skilled, where you can do it well, but you have to think hard to do it well. And number four, unconsciously skilled, when it just happens. Did you pick a stage? Where are you at with your sprinting? I think the hard thing here is that even if you are in stage four, you still might not be doing it right. So every stage has something to at least try. But that's the thing with cues. The ultimate goal is to get you to know what it feels like. And when you nail it, you know it. So it becomes more about chasing a feeling than anything else. A quick test the next time you're on a bike, after you've done a sprint, for example, ask yourself, how did that feel? Or if you've done a couple of sprints, which one felt the best? Okay, it was that one. Why did it feel the best? And to give you a primer before you go out and do this, the best feeling is not about it being easy. It's more about movement efficiency, what felt strongest and fastest. Because underlying this feeling is a movement that is more efficient or economical, where the same outcome is achieved with less energy expended. Numerous studies have provided evidence that an external focus of attention speeds up the learning process so that a higher skill characterized by both increased effectiveness and efficiency is achieved sooner, better, faster. Studies like the one called Adoption of External Focus of Attention Improves Sprinting Performance in Low-Skilled Sprinters. That tested the prediction that participants completing a 20-minute sprint would run significantly faster when using an external focus of attention rather than an internal or no focus of attention. The internal cue group was given these instructions. While you are running the 20-meter dash, focus on driving one leg forward as powerfully as possible while moving your other leg and foot down and back as quickly as possible as you accelerate. I don't know about you, but that's pretty confusing. The external cue group was given the following. 
while you are running the 20 meter dash, focus on driving forward as powerfully as possible while clawing the floor with your shoes as quickly as possible as you accelerate. The control group got, please run a 20 meter dash as quickly as possible. This resulted in the external focus condition being significantly, and that significant is 3.15% faster than the trials completed in the internal and control conditions. Or there's another study done by Newman and Brown that gave different attentional focus instructions while participants performed several sets of sit-ups, external focus instructions to make your movements smooth or make your movements flow, compared to internal focus instructions to focus on your stomach muscles or feel your stomach muscles working, resulted in a reduced heart rate and EMG activity despite a larger range of motion. So if your interest is sparked then, what makes a good cue? It has to be said here that I recognize that everybody has different learning styles and so will respond to different types of cues, but really cues are secondary to the thing we're trying to elicit and have to be appropriate for the skill, so skill specific. If it's sprinting, it's got to be about sprinting. Appropriate for the situation, is it a first sprint or the last of 10 sprints? And appropriate for the level of rider, different cues at different development stages, beginner, intermediate, advanced. Overall, though, a cue must be succinct. That is, per skill, we're talking about no more than three to five words, or just ideally as short as possible. Because cues which are too long, too complex, are quite simply just too complicated and unlikely to teach you the desired skill. To keep it simple, think about coaching cues that focus on the key feature of the skill. And there are three main types of coaching cues, which I have gone through already, but they're internal, external, and normal. So let's just quickly go through each type. Internal, this is what your body is doing. Internal cues like sit squarely on your sit bones or drop your shoulders, relax the upper body, soften elbows, focus your attention on what your body is doing in relation to the bike. External cues are, what are you doing to your surroundings? External cues give the rider a goal and their body figures out the best way to hit that goal. Normal cues are basically just the absence of instruction. This is your normal focus when you're given no cue whatsoever. So in reality, you may have your own cue or instruction based on how you develop the skill and what you think you should be doing, and that can be either internal or external. It's easy to see that most of the time my coaches were giving me internal cues, drop your shoulders, stop rocking, hold the bars like you're playing a piano. Here are internal and external cue examples for sprinting. Internal cues, hinge your body forward at the hips, engage your core, chest, arms, pull up the bars. External cues, spin the globe, stay long and low and drive back as explosively as you can. Also note that based on the current literature, to enhance the sprinting performance of athletes, coaches are encouraged to administer external coaching before each sprint repetition. There's many other studies showing findings that external cues are more effective than both internal and normal cues for performance, skill development and retention. And as the goal of any cue is to learn how to be unconsciously skilled, where the skill just happens, it is all about the feeling of nailing it and chasing that feeling. The power of the external cue is usually just the starting point. And if it's done a good job, you'll take that external cue and work out how to make it internal to eventually not need to cue yourself at all. A quick note here, I'm working on a audio first series of external coaching cues 
for different cycling skills. And the idea is that you take your headphones out riding and then you get the cues before you do the skill and then you can learn and practice a skill with guidance in that way where we're trying to move past the external into the internal and then to where it just happens automatically. Keep an ear out here because I'll be launching this hopefully within the next three or four weeks. It's time for The Science of Fast. The Science of Fast, the segment of the show where it's 100% science and 100% fast. Well, disclaimer, it's not going to be 100% fast. But anyway, this time, cycling-specific isometric resistance training improves power peak output in elite sprint cyclists. Now, don't be scared. We'll go through this one together slowly, I promise. It'll all make sense, and it could help you increase your peak power output. This study slots into our sprinting training toolkit and gives us options if you're a well-trained athlete and your peak power has plateaued, and this is stopping you from reaching your cycling goals. It's a study done with track cyclists, so the timing of the intervention within a season is different to the last episode's sprinting intervention of the pro road cyclist. The road cyclists did their sprinting training intervention at the start of their base phase, and this looks like it was done later in the season when speed is more important. With that said, let's start by quickly defining isometric resistance training. It could also be called static strength training because it involves muscle engagement without movement, where you pick one position and you hold it. And a classic example of this is a plank, where you get on all fours, or your elbows and your toes, and you hold this position, and that gives you an easy visualization of a position where your muscles are working, but you're not actively changing lengths. In this study, cycling-specific isometric resistance training was created by putting the rider in a sprint position on a purpose-built ergo with the lead leg at a specific angle. They were locked in and not able to pedal. Then they were asked to do a three-second all-out effort, basically pushing jammed-up pedals as hard as they could. And this is the type of training that the study aimed to assess compared to the more traditional gym work of deadlifts, etc. The riders were elite cyclists and they did a six-week training intervention to see if peak power output increased from this type of training. Hint, it did. The reasoning behind why the authors wanted to try cycling-specific resistance training is because this type of training requires athletes to execute maximal isometric muscle actions in cycling-specific positions. It gives cyclists the opportunity to develop maximum levels of force at cycling-specific joint angles with the added benefit of not having to handle heavy loads in other types of strength training. Injury alert. Okay, so to the study, there were 24 track cyclists, 17 males, 7 females, with 200-meter personal best times of the males between 9.6 and 10.8 seconds, and this is between 1 to 12% of the C-level world record. And for the females, 10.9 seconds and 12 seconds within 3 to 11% of the C-level world record. And to get a sense of the caliber of rider here, of the sprinters, four had participated in two Olympic Games, winning three gold medals, one silver, one bronze. 13 had competed in senior world championships, winning four silver medals. The remaining were either competing internationally at UCI Class 1 or two track competitions, World Cups, senior or under 23 level, or had won a national medal in a track sprint event. So highly trained and highly competent. These riders were allocated to an experimental and a control group, which meant that the study was a parallel group 
controlled trial design. There were a number of tests done before and after the six-week training program, and these included things like DEXA scan, ultrasounds, neuromuscular assessments, and also a sprint cycling assessment to measure the peak power output, torque, cadence, and power cadence relationships. The peak power output test was a sprint test done on a modified ergo and recorded the maximum power over three consecutive revolutions measured from top center of the pedal stroke. You with me? Stay with me. We're getting to the fun part now, the training intervention. And all participants completed a six-week training intervention and training was identical between the groups except for the content of the gym sessions. In both experimental and control groups, participants were prescribed weekly track sessions on Tuesday and Thursday, gym sessions on Monday, Wednesday, alternating with road sessions, and Friday, and road sessions on Wednesday, alternating with gym sessions, and Saturday. The track sessions consisted of a high torque day where they did stationary or slow-moving maximal efforts of 3 to 12 reps of 6 to 20 seconds, and a high-power day where they did 3 to 5 reps of 10 to 35 seconds where efforts were commenced from higher cadences and velocities. So they were working on the sprints in training as well here. And on a side note, how low are the actual count of those intervals from 3 to 12 or 3 to 5? You don't need a lot of volume when you're training for intensive gains on your power curve. The road sessions were 60 to 90 minutes in duration at a perceived effort level of 2 to 4 on the Borg category ratio 10 scale. Okay, so now we get to the nitty-gritty of the gym sessions. First, the control group were prescribed a bilateral compound multi-joint exercise to develop leg strengths. That's a very descriptive way of saying they either did back squats, front squats, or deadlifts, depending on the rider preference. They did three to five sets of three to five reps at an intensity equivalent to 85 to 95% of their one rep max. They did a two to three second descent, a maximal mobilization of load in the concentric phase, and a complete recovery of three to five minutes between sets. I don't know if this is their normal training, but that's a great insight into what Team GB has been doing in the gym, even doing it right now. But the load selected was designed to be challenging to the athlete, but not result in momentary muscle failure. These exercises were followed by three sets of another multi-joint exercise with similar loads such as cleans or barbell jumps, dumbbell lunges or single or double leg press. And after two main exercises, unilateral exercises, knee extensions, hamstring curls, calf raises were completed but were higher in volume, 6 to 12 repetitions and a lower load, approximately 70 to 90 of predicted one rep max. And followed by auxiliary exercises focused on conditioning the trunk. Now, the experimental group sessions consisted of a progressive maximal cycling-specific isometric strength training stimulus. That's such a mouthful. Participants performed in three separate positions for each leg, 45 degrees, 90 degrees, and 135 degrees from the top dead center. And these angles were associated with the highest torque production during the crank cycle. All efforts were maximal and three seconds in length to allow attainment of maximum torque on each repetition. And the progression was as follows. In week one, one times three repetitions at each three joint angles. And then it went to two by four, three by three, four by three, four by three, four by four in week five. And then in week six, it was four by four. Between each rep, 60 seconds of passive rest was given. Between each set, 
and crank position change, two minutes of passive rest was given. The exercise was prescribed to alternate lead legs at each position, for example, three sets on the right at 45 degrees, followed by three sets on the left, leading at 45 degrees. The order of angles was randomly prescribed on each visit. For all efforts, real-time visual feedback on the torque produced through the crank arm was provided to motivate a best attempt. The experimental group finished each gym session with the same auxiliary exercises for trunk conditioning as the control group. So the results. Increases in cycling peak power output. On average, cyclists in the experimental group increased their peak power output and relative peak power output by 3 and 4% respectively. In contrast, participants in the control group who completed a best-practiced control intervention consisting of their regular resistance training program showed no improvement, 0% on average, for both absolute and relative peak power output. How's that? That work on that ergo, that actual resistance, I haven't seen a video of anything of it, but I can picture it, and it seems like it would be easier. And definitely, this thing about not doing an injury, because I don't know if you've ever done a deadlift injury, it's very, very easy to do at heavy weights. As this study mentions, and I will reinforce, it is well recognized that providing improvements in sport performance in already elite athletes is very difficult to achieve and even more difficult to measure. Considering this context, the changes in peak power output observed as a consequence of cycling-specific isometric training are pronounced and support the use of this novel training strategy in elite populations. It's also worthy to note that while it's rare to find something that works in an elite group, it's probably even rarer to find a group of elite athletes and coaches willing to go through an experiment like this, which says a lot about the culture in English cycling. So kudos to them. So are you convinced? To me, this gives a well-developed rider a chance to move beyond the gym and try a new approach in resistance training with an indoor trainer and some type of pedal stopping device like the BMX-specific sprint block, but used in the opposite way. These three-second efforts may be a way to hit new peak power outputs. And that's it. That's all I got. Ride Better, Faster is written, hosted, and scored by me, Damien Roos. You can check out more episodes at semiprocycling.com. Until next time, ride well. <laughs>